This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and once again, we are continuing our best picture countdown from Wings to Moonlight, as we have now renamed it to keep up with the most recent Best Picture winner, uh, which will, of course, end up changing again after the next Oscar ceremony happens. But for now, we're calling it From Wings to Moonlight. On part one of this episode, we were counting down uh, the top 10 movies from 1978 to 1987 uh, as rated and ranked, and then the bottom five were on part one which uh, in order was Terms of Endearment, Gandhi, Out of Africa, Chariots of Fire, and Platoon. And just like the last episode, I am joined by Stephanie Pryor. Thank you for joining me again. Yeah, no problem. Uh, So we went through 10 through 6. It was your first time doing this show with me, you know, this Oscar countdown. Um, did you struggle at all finding things to talk about for movies you didn't like or try to find positives or try not to be too negative? What was the process like for you? Um, I think my problem was I was trying to be too diplomatic overall, (laughs) trying to find something good and trying to find something bad, you know, always give a strength and a weakness for each film. And sometimes when you don't like a film, you just don't like a film and yeah, it's hard to come up with that, but you don't want to be that harsh. So it's hard to be critical mm-hmm. and real at the same time. When you're watching these movies and you're taking notes, do you find it, what do you find easier to do? Pointing out things you don't like or don't work for you or pointing out things that do work for you? I think finding things that don't work for me is easier to point out because when something happens and you really just doesn't rub you the right way, it's kind of really noticeable and you, you take note of that. Well, when things that you enjoy or that you appreciate, you, you acknowledge it, but it's almost like, it behind, just goes past you. yeah, it's almost just an experience and nothing jolts you into realizing why you're enjoying it. It's more, Oh, I didn't like that. I think, I think that's a pretty fair way of looking at it where, you know, for the most part, when we're engaged in watching something that we're liking, we're not noticing, you know, the tricks of the trade, basically. But when something isn't working, whether it's either a performance or a directorial style or a script or a cinematography, things like that, whatever choices mm-hmm. are being made, it becomes more obvious to be able to be like, why did they do it that way? That doesn't really make sense. Or I'm not really feeling this right now. I'm having a bit of an out-of-body experience while I'm watching this. Yeah, for sure. I think, actually, I can probably pinpoint the the first time that I really appreciated something and started looking at film in a critical way. And it was probably much later on in my life than it should have been. But it was while watching Skyfall in the movie theaters <laughs> and Bond is fighting a villain and there's like a blue, it's not a screen, but light behind mm-hmm. them. And it's just breathtaking to watch and it was like wow i really appreciate this shot and just made me start thinking about movies more critically from that and roger deacon still didn't win an oscar (laughs) for that and still has not yeah i know that's something that bugs you it does it really does you know a lot of the time we don't give a lot of credit to 
you know, behind the camera people outside of the director or writer. Uh, but, uh, I think Deacons is someone whose style stands out no matter what director he's working with. And I think the biggest thing is his use of light. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that he has been nominated for, I think, 12 Oscars and has never won one is a travesty. And he, I hope he'll be nominated this year for Blade Runner and he might win, although he might have some competition from other movies like, uh, Dunkirk or things like that. Uh, but you know, I'm just putting my hat in the ring right now. <laughs> I want Deacons to win because he deserves it. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to take a short break. And when we do, we're going to come back uh, and we're going to start the countdown of the top five movies, which I know in the last episode you mentioned that you're pretty excited to talk about these movies, some in particular, right? Yes, definitely some in particular. All right. Sounds good. So, as I promised, we're going to talk about the top five movies from 1978 to 1987. Uh, these are some some really solid movies. You know, a couple of them, I think we differ slightly on the amount that we, we liked it. But uh, I think it's safe to say that we liked all five of them just to varying degrees. Yeah, I think that's... Whereas the bottom five, you know, there is a couple we might have liked, but overall, those were not movies we were especially fond of. Yeah. No, I agree. Okay. Uh, So coming in at number five is The Last Emperor, which came out in 1987 and was directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. Uh, The film won all nine Oscars it was nominated for. So that's a pretty good 100% batting average that it had. This is a pretty interesting movie because it kind of follows the life of the, as the movie says, the last emperor of China, who was made an emperor at a very young age when he was a toddler. And it follows him basically as a puppet emperor um, for the rising uh, authoritarian, totalitarian leadership that was going on. Uh, And then he gets deposed uh, as a young man. I believe it's in his 20s or so. And then he goes to prison for a while. And then you see him finally being released from prison as an old man uh, and him living life as a humble farmer uh, into his golden years. So this is interesting. You know, we we talked about last time the idea of biopics don't really work when they cover an entire lifespan. But this seemingly does cover an entire lifespan. And the length shows for it, much like Gandhi, it's about a three-hour running time. But I think they do a far better job of showing us who Emperor P.U. is. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And I think something that really makes it stand out from Gandhi is that it uses flashbacks and flash forwards while it's telling the story. So it kind of has some interest along the plot where it's not just kind of a stagnant point A to point B storyline. And um, you get to really appreciate the different stages of this character's life. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think all things considered, just the sheer amount of work that Bertolucci put into this movie, I think, makes it uh, a worthy Best Picture winner. He was the first Western filmmaker to be allowed to film inside the Forbidden City. Uh, they used a copious amount of extras. Yep. The costuming is absolutely gorgeous for a period piece. Uh, you know, a lot of times there's these great uh, Asian period pieces where the costumes are the real highlight of the films. Um there's been a few in recent years, but you know, there's sort of a bit of a revival of them from the early, late nineties, early two thousands onward. And this is kind of, you know, a bit of a renaissance for that, where I think it might have helped kickstart things a little bit, especially with regards to Western filmmakers sort of appreciating all the beauty there is in, you know, whether it's Chinese or Japanese or Korean, uh, art whether that's the costumes or the set design, uh, everything about this just is beautiful. And there's no two ways about it. You just look at this movie, still frames of it and you can, the beauty radiates off of it. Yeah, definitely. I think they kept it real authentic. I mean, it's hard to, to screw up something that's so culturally beautiful to begin with, but I think it was just handled with such care and such like devotion. You could really tell that he cared about, the the culture and getting it right and just showing the true beauty of that time and space Mm -hmm. uh the color palettes i think are something that's really striking um it's really something that's you know bertolucci was influenced by a lot of other chinese filmmakers because color means so much to the chinese community you know things like uh for new year's red is such an important color and you'll see that everywhere red and gold and i think this movie really highlights the colors yellow orange and blue uh, especially with the costumes, but also the way everything was sort of lit, um, using as much natural lighting as possible for the earlier stuff, uh, and then moving into rooms where there actually are lights. He kind of uses that to his advantage and has these really nice soft blues in some scenes. So it's really striking the way he, he worked all of that together. Um, you know, this movie, at this moment, we're kind of talking just about the the look of it, but I think we'd be remiss to talk about this movie. Actually, has a, a bit of fun to it, and there's some some funny parts. You know, early on, there's this craziness of the idea of grown men not being allowed to rein in a disab- um, disobedient child. Uh, this child is running around in the courtyard, and there's literally dozens of you know soldiers and handlers that are chasing him in circles, and they can't touch him because he's the emperor. And there's just a little bit of like hilarity to watching this, um, you know, very Marx Brothers Chaplin esque sequence uh, of, you know, a four year old running in circles, laughing hysterically, and these old men being like, ah! trying to run after him and stop him from causing any trouble, but they can't actually stop him from doing that. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny to see. Um, so there are some, you know, some really good parts. You know, this, the movie, I think, maybe, fails a little bit with some of the more dramatic stuff uh, especially you know in the midway point of the movie once uh, we realize the the totalitarian aspect of the movie uh, sort of taking over the the emperor's life Um, but I, I think they they do you know that's kind of a tough thing to talk about where 
where do they fail as far as blending comedy and drama? It might have been an issue with the casting of the actor who played P.U. I don't have that in front of me, uh, but I think that might have been one of the issues behind that. Hmm. Was that something you found? Oh, like the casting, were you okay with it? I didn't have a problem with any of the casting. It was, it was more, I mean, I think I've made this comment before in in another podcast that I just, I don't like long films. It's hard <laughs> for me to keep my attention. So I, I found that, yeah, like around the middle mark, maybe three quarters of the way, kind of hit a little bit of a speed bump, slowed down uh, quite a bit more and kind of lacked or uh, dragged in a few places. But I actually didn't mind the casting Maybe that was just me. I yeah. looked it up. It's it's John Lone, um, who who played the adult Puyi, uh, not Piu Puyi. Uh, so my apologies for for getting that incorrectly. Um, I thought there was you know an interesting moment where Puyi has resisted getting glasses for the longest time because um, he not him himself, but his handlers believe that that's a commoner thing to do. Uh, and when he finally does, and he puts the glasses on suddenly, you know, the camera does this really great trick where everything around him shows such detail. You know, he looks around the camera pans and it shows the details, the fine work of some of the costumes around him. Uh, and I think that's really an interesting thing to, to actually show. Whereas, you know, most other filmmakers might've just had the actor go, wow, I can finally see things. Uh, but to actually show the detail that Puyi was seeing, I think was, was a nice touch for that. Yeah. It's always better to show than to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, one of the interesting topics of this movie was this idea of having a child emperor, which, you know, we can all kind of laugh at the absurdity of it, that a culture believes that just by right of birth that someone should be the ruler. And we get to see the sort of progress of a child at the age of two, three years old suddenly being thrust into this position without a choice while he still wants to be a child, but then kind of being forced to grow up at a toddler's age. And he kind of gets stuck in a bit of an arrested development stage where throughout the whole movie, as he gets older, when he's a teenager, when he's a adult, he always kind of remains this petulant child because mm-hmm. he's always been given anything that he wants, even when he's facing these dire circumstances as being exiled from his home and, and things like that and being used as a pawn. He still has this bit of a petulant child attitude. And I find even when he's in prison, he sort of has that same air about him. And I think that part of, of Lone's performance is really well done or you kind of just want to smack him and be like, what's your problem? But then, you know, you have to remember that this is someone who, since he was four years old, told that he was literally picked from by God to be the chosen ruler of all of China and people literally bow at his feet and no one is allowed to touch him and things like that. So it's very, it's a very interesting dynamic. And I think they do a pretty interesting job showing that progression where he tries to grow and learn and be a worldly person, but he still kind of has a bit of that petulance inside him that never really goes away. Even when he's an old man and, you know, you see him being a humble farmer, he still has a bit of that disobedient streak inside of him. Yeah. You can tell that he's struggling with not getting his way and trying to understand why 
just by him saying something that it's not working and quite like a child, even when he's older, like you said, he's, he still can't wrap his head around it and you can see the real struggle in his performance. Mm -hmm. I think we, we talked about quite a bit of, you know, maybe what worked. Was there anything that kind of stood out for you that, that didn't really work for you or something like that? Is there a reason why this is only in, in fifth place for you and not, maybe not higher? Um, well, length, obviously Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's always my biggest issue. Uh, but I just thought, you know, while, while I thought it was better than Gandhi with being, you know, spanning a long period of time over one person's life journey and that it was more interesting with the flashbacks and flash forwards and kind of weaving in and out of his life. I don't know. They're just, it's always hard to make such a long story interesting. So there's always going to be those plateaus that seem to struggle to get along to just move on to the next point. And I think there were just a few scenes that just dragged on just a little too long for me. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on? Sure. Okay. So coming in at number four was the deer hunter, which came out in 1978 and was directed by Michael Cimino The film won five Oscars and was nominated for four others. So with, Platoon being another war film that we talked about in the first podcast. How do you think this stands up in in the war film category? I think it does it takes the aspect of war and does it completely different. While they both sort of really show the horrors of Vietnam, uh, I think that they are they go about their way of showing it much differently this movie with all its controversy behind it really sort of showed a lot more of the aspect uh for the vietnamese and north vietnamese side of things uh which i know a lot of people were not very happy with especially them making it look like the the vietnamese people were such savages where I think maybe at the time that was a bit of a shocking thing. We're now with more information, not to, you know, downplay the horrific things that the American army did over there. I think we now know what the North Vietnamese was also capable of. They were just doing it on a much smaller scale that I think hindsight, looking back at this movie now over 30 years from now, we can sort of appreciate this idea of showing the atrocities uh, from both sides of, uh, of of the fighting, which is very interesting. This movie also sort of reminds me a bit of Full Metal Jacket. I know that's not a movie you've you've seen, but that movie is basically two movies in one. The whole first half of the movie is this infantry group at boot camp, and then the second half it just cuts directly to it is them in the war. There is there's no being shipped off. There's no anything else. It's just two separate things combined together with a quick cut. And I find this movie to be very similar in that regard, although done a little bit differently. You have this pre-war aspect where you get this really, really long wedding sequence that takes up, I think, about 40 minutes. It's a big chunk. And when I'm watching it, you know, it, it was a little hard to get through because it was so slow, but I think it really informed a lot of what was going on. You really got to know these characters before they were put under duress. Mm-hmm. So we really get to see these people. And then you see this also kind of a bit of a longer, uh, the first deer hunting sequence. And then 
there's a very harsh cut and all of a sudden they're in Vietnam. So much like Full Metal Jacket, there is no transition. There is no going off to war montage of, you know, them signing up and getting yeah. their boot camp and flying over there and being deployed and first getting action. No, there, it literally plops you in the middle of a battle, basically. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, kind of doing away with all these unnecess- unnecessary aspects is one of the things that I think makes this movie work because a lot of times war movies in particular love to show you the stuff we don't care about. You know, if you want to have a movie where there's training sequences, make that the basis of it, whether it's something like Full Metal Jacket or anything or Band of Brothers or whatever it is, show that stuff. Really show. Don't do like a 10 minute sequence, 15 minute sequence where you don't care (laughs) or a montage or them like flying over there. You don't, you don't care about that. Get to the plot points that actually matter. And I think that does a really good job of actually showing you the important Mm -hmm. stuff. So I think for me, it works for that, even though it does have a long runtime. Yeah. I actually didn't mind this runtime. I found it. Well, I think there are three sections to this film you've got Mm -hmm. the you know the beginning the wedding scene and the deer hunting scene before they get before they they end up in vietnam then you have the the vietnam stuff and then post vietnam uh ending i guess the the last third of it and i think each section does a really good job of showing the character development you're introduced to these characters the three best friends at the beginning and their relationships with their friends around them and their family around them and you kind of get this idea of who they are, you know, you have the macho one, you have the quiet one, you have the kind of the young, innocent one. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the middle section where their per- their traits and characters are tested. You know, is De Niro's macho leader, is he going to pull the group together and, and get out of the situation? Is the young, I think his name was Stevie, the one who got married in the, in the first Third, is he, he's so innocent and everything is so, um, emotional and just cuts really deep for him. And it's really hard for him. Is he going to be able to pull through? And then Nick, who's like so quiet and he has to, to learn to speak up for himself and to, to work through it. And, and then the last third where they're struggling with what they've seen and you can really tell the difference now between who they were in the first third and who they are in, in the Levaster. And I think that really shows a really good portrayal of what war can do to a person, how it changes someone, and how it really affects their character as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were just talking about The Last Emperor with, with how beautiful it looked. I think one of the real highlights of The Deer Hunter is the fact that this was all shot on locations. You know, the first chunk of the movie you're in this is it is it pennsylvania yeah okay so you get this really cold pennsylvania town and everything is gray and dingy and you can just feel the cold seeping into your bones uh and then you know you got this big wedding scene but then you know you're they go into this first hunting sequence and you see the real beauty that surrounds them and it is just absolutely stunning seeing them in this this mountain lodge area these cliffs the lakes things like that and then in vietnam it was actually shot over in asia i'm not sure exactly where um it was not shot in vietnam um, but I believe it was shot in, I think, Cambodia or something like that. Um, 
the landscape there is absolutely beautiful, all very harsh as well in a different way. And then when you come back, it sort of continues that aspect. And then there's, you know, the, the final hunting sequence. It might have been something shot out of planet Earth. Like it looks so striking and beautiful. This, the waterfalls and everything that's going on in this beautiful remote area is just absolutely stunning. And sometimes you forget just like how beautiful parts of America can be. And I think this was like done with the right camera, the right lenses, the right lighting, everything about it just was absolutely beautiful. And I think was a real highlight of the movie for making it work and believing in the atmosphere that these people are in. Yeah. Yeah. It was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think this movie is essentially, you know, a, a character study movie. It's about the three people, but it's also about the, the lives of, of those, around them whether it's their friends or their lovers or things like that so i think we'd be remiss to not actually talk about some of these performances you know we've got uh christopher walken who is seen as a bit of a joke now you know this he won an oscar for this movie um were were you surprised by his performance at all or were you sort of expecting him to be good in this movie yeah someone who has only really seen walken and kind of caricature joke-like characters i was really impressed with his performance like it kind of blew me away his quiet subtlety and just kind of the rawness that he brought to it because I, I just wasn't expecting that you know he's always this kind of goofy guy that you just make fun of everyone knows the christopher walken voice mm -hmm. and uh I just thought it was a really good performance really mm -hmm. convincing mm -hmm. yeah i I struggled a bit with his his end scenes uh, in the Russian roulette Did at the you? very end, where I I think he was overacting a little bit. In what way? Um, you know, he was at this point he's addicted to heroin to deal with his pain and, and PTSD, uh, but it just seemed like there was a bit too much acting going on mm -hmm. to make us understand what was going on. Where I think contrast it with what De Niro was bringing to the table uh, just made him seem a little over the top. Um, and I think, you know, these are two actors who kind of for, for almost their whole careers have sort of had something chasing after them, you know, the, the critique of overacting at times. De Niro, you know, in my opinion, hasn't given a good performance since Heat in the early 90s. Um, he's come close a couple times. I didn't mind him in um, not Silver Lion's Playbook, but um, American Hustle. I thought he was all right in that as the gangster that had a bit part. And he was okay in Silver Lion's Playbook. Not my favorite, necessarily. I like that movie in general. Um, but... You know, I think that's the closest he's gotten to actually having a good performance then because his trademark now is that he's an overactor. You know, everything is large and over the top. Yeah. Whether it's a comedic performance, you know, I, I you know, I will say he was good in Meet the Parents. The very, yeah. the first Meet the Parents before that series turned into an absolute joke of its own self and completely ruined what was a very good comedic movie. Um, I think in part because he, De Niro was doing a De Niro impression. Um, and it seems like that's all he can do these days. Much like Al Pacino, he can only do Al Pacino impressions. Um, 
so these are two actors who have really spent their last, you know, 30 years of their career fighting off the critiques of overacting. And in this movie in particular, De Niro absolutely tones down the acting to a bare minimum at times. But what he offers you is so fulfilling to actually see. You know, at the beginning, the first third of the movie, he kind of has this reserved tough guy performance that you were talking about. But once he's in the war, it kind of changes and it's still very subtle. And then when he gets back from the war, that's when it kind of kicks into overdrive. And I don't know what Chimino did if he was using alternate takes or telling De Niro to tone things down or just because at this era, De Niro was literally the best actor on the planet but he gives one hell of a performance yeah the latter half of the film he like really stepped it up and was really convincing Mm -hmm. yeah there's this deep well of sadness to Mm -hmm. him an empathy where just looking into his eyes makes you want to cry and just give him a hug or something because you can feel the pain that he's in and i think that's the hallmark of a good actor is they can act with just their eyes. See, that's what I, I liked about Walken and De Niro's performance. I feel like their characters switched uh, personalities. Mm. At the beginning, I thought you could see in, in Walken's character's eyes, he was thinking stuff, but he wasn't saying it. Like, he was the sensitive, quiet one, but mm-hmm. you knew stuff was going on inside. Whereas De Niro was this, like, tough, macho guy who just didn't really have much behind there, behind that. But then by the end of the film... Or Walken is struggling with his addiction and just doesn't seem to care about anything anymore. He's just lost all hope for anything. He's got nothing behind his eyes. And De Niro's the one who has, you know, the weight of the world behind them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. You know, a couple of years ago, there was a documentary that came out called Last Days in Vietnam, which is a really interesting look of literally the last days of the Vietnam War when they were trying to evacuate all remaining American people and sort of the chaos that ensued with getting everyone out of the country um, while things were kind of somewhat stable before things completely delved into chaos. And watching that movie first and then a couple years ago and then now seeing Deer Hunter, the sequences towards the end when they're trying to evacuate, they did a stunning job making it look exactly the same almost looked like a documentary it really did you know there there's the sequences of them like you know tossing the helicopter off the carrier into the ocean because the carrier can't support the weight of the helicopters and they recreate that in deer hunter and i think a lot of the stuff that we see in the movie last days in vietnam was you know pretty new material because it was kind of held back from being shown because i think the american people were not ready to see such you know things happening and the fact that they did it all in the deer hunter is pretty mind-boggling to to show just how accurate it was yeah i think one of the criticisms for deer hunter where was its authenticity and uh, a lot of critics had issues with different things that were shown but when it came to the the showing of vietnam the country the nation the struggle and the chaos itself i think it had it like bang on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that, that was pretty fascinating to me um so yeah i, I you know i i really liked it. i think talking about this movie helps me like it more i think you know right after i watched it you know i was i liked it i didn't love it but i think the more you think about this movie and the more you kind of talk about it the more you can help process it and i think it like it holds up better yeah no i think i agree with that 
Okay, uh, let's move on. Next, we've got Amadeus, which came out in 1984 and was directed by Milos Forman. The film won eight Oscars and was nominated for three others. Um, this is a yet another biopic, but as we've said now twice, <laughs> the covering an entire lifespan doesn't always work. I think because Amadeus did not live a very long life, they did a pretty good job of condensing his adult years to show you the most important aspects of his life. Um, is that something that maybe worked a little bit better as far as pacing and thematically it goes? Totally. I think the pacing of this film worked brilliantly. And you can tell because there was, there was definitely a definite chunks in between his life that weren't shown and weren't talked about or weren't touched in one case like um him and his wife have a baby you don't see any time between her having this baby and like when the baby's three or four or whatever old it is and uh i appreciate that there's not all this fluff in between to just get down to the the nitty-gritty stories Mm -hmm. um and you know i think the most important part about doing a biopic about uh, a musician or a composer is that the music needs to play an integral part of the movie. And I think that it does. You know, at the beginning, you've got this, the passion of music absolutely oozes through Antonio Salieri in a way that we can only dream of. This, you know, him thinking of music is just absolutely beautiful beautiful to watch. You know, you have F. Murray Abraham's performance, you know, layered over top with the actual music, him playing the piano, him talking about music. It's just something that that's very real. And and I don't know if Abraham's is, you know, a big music fan or he's just that good of an actor, but I think, you know, it works so well. Yeah, you can really tell his love for music and his just his passion for wanting to be the best at his craft and just loving it and wanting to be engulfed in this passion. I think for me, there's two other really key music moments that I want to talk about that absolutely work for me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you've got the montage of Salieri going through Mozart's first drafts and it does what a movie is supposed to do. A movie is combining visuals with sound and, you know, him reading the notes and the, 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 the pages and just the music coming to life and, you know, combining those two things. We can see him reading. We can see him being excited and we can hear the music playing out in his head because Salieri also, you know, a musical genius thinks much in the same way someone like Amadeus does, even if Amadeus sort of looks down. He doesn't really look down on Salieri, but he looks down on everyone that isn't himself. But we really see how closely they are compared to everyone else. You know, you, you've got the the count or whoever it is, the, the court emperor that wants to play the music <laughs> himself, and it's absolutely terrible hearing yeah. it. Um but like seeing, you know, Salieri thinking about Mozart's music is just absolutely beautiful. And then later on in the movie, um, near the end, when Salieri is helping Mozart uh, compose the Requiem sequence, yeah. it actually reminds me a bit of uh, there's a scene in Moonrise Kingdom where they play a record where they introduce oh, yeah. each instrument 
and then you hear the instrument and then it layers it on and now top. The oboe. Yes, that that <laughs> sequence. And I think they do a great job at the end of this, which I don't know if this influenced Moonrise Kingdom or what, but you know you've got Salieri frantically writing everything down as Mozart can only is spitting it out so fast. Yeah. And he's like in a quarter note, this, and you know, half a stanza, this and this and this. And it's just like these little, you know, half second, three second, four second, two second clips <laughs> of sound and the different instruments. And, you know, you got the little timpinis going and the violin soaring and everything else. And it's just, and the drum beat going and hearing it layer one on top of another, just absolutely incredible to hear. I think that's another aspect of marrying this visual, uh, with the sound effects. Yeah, I, I like that you brought that up because that's actually my favorite scene of the entire film. Just the frantic, frenetic energy that comes from that scene. And like you said, Mozart spitting out these, these words and these commands and Salieri trying to, to write down as fast as he can. And, and it's all just falling, like just spilling out of Mozart. And while he's, while Salieri is trying to write it down, you can just see in his face the like, recognition of oh my god that's brilliant oh my god yeah this is beautiful this is perfect blah 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 and it's just i thought it was such a good marriage of the characters and just the music and the scenes everything just worked so well for me in this scene it was my favorite mm-hmm. you know I, this this movie is quite funny you've got tom hulse's performance as amadeus which is just an absolutely hilarious take on the character you know this this is based on a, a peter schaefer play and schaefer also wrote the screenplay for this movie um and got a very well-deserved oscar win too uh who we now know and at the time you know this is a pretty fictionalized take on both amadeus and salieri they were not rivals in the classical sense uh that this movie presents um I think everything is heightened up to an 11. You've got the absolute flamboyance of Hulse, which is just so funny to watch at times. And I think for me, the maybe some of the funniest aspects of this movie is this constant motif that Mozart's father is a vampire. <laughs> His it's cape. his cape. You know, the first time we're introduced to him, he's standing at the top of a, a stairwell landing and his arms are outstretched with his cape wrapped around his arms, but he's going for a hug, but he looks like, you know, the classic Dracula figure. Yeah. And we had just gotten done watching a bunch of Dracula movies yeah. and he just could it's not help watch, like laughing at that. And he swings his arm around to turn around it looks like you know what christopher lee was doing uh and then there's another sequence where it actually cuts to i think like a bat flying away like this was very intentional this idea of um uh mozart's father being this you know mythical creature demon that's you know controlling his life much like dracula controls his victims yeah it was really funny yeah that was something that made me laugh um i appreciate it i really appreciate it that in a movie about operas that they actually had the courage to show you an opera Mm -hmm. you know for the average movie going audience, you know, opera is not on the high list of things of people that are excited to see, but they actually took the time to show you, especially like in the Don Giovanni sequence, they show you a good chunk of it, probably about 15 minutes or so where you really get to see it and not, you know, just 
short little clips like we normally get when opera is shown in movies, but actual scenes, and I think that was done really wonderfully. Yeah. No, I liked it. I liked mm-hmm. those scenes, and I think it just really showed you, you know, what, not only just what Mozart did, and you could see him uh, conducting them and his kind of energy and what was coming there, and when he was even watching them, too, and just the feeling and emotions that operas can evoke from mm-hmm. people watching them. I think they did a good job contrasting the different types of opera at the time. You know, we we think of classic opera being, you know, this very stuffy royal affair where the king sits in the front row. Uh, and they definitely show those sequences where the audience isn't allowed to react until, you know, the royal people uh, react first. And however they react, everyone else has to mirror it. But then they also show you this, you know almost very globe theater-esque, Shakespeare theater-esque version where, you know, the poor people, the peasants would go and probably pay, you know, half a penny Mm -hmm. to go see it. And, you know, people are laughing and it's a comedic affair. It's, it it definitely has a bit of a lowbrow aspect to it, but, you know, for people, everyone, this was what entertainment was, you know? This is what you go and see. And I think they do a really good job sort of highlighting the different ways that opera was presented at the time. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of cool. Um, you know, we're talking about all this comedic elements. Was there, How did the, the dramatic side of it really stack up for you? Um, well, I should mention that I really, really liked this movie. So everything was ranked high up there for me, uh, comedic and more drama side. Uh, I think just the performances is what did it for me. Like, um, Salieri, what's his name? F. Murray Abraham's performance I thought was really strong. And you could see his anguish and his annoyance and frustration not just with Mozart, but with God. He was so (laughs) angry that he could give this kind of um, inappropriate, bratty, young man, this brilliant talent. And that's all he strived for. That's all he wanted. And he was faithful to his religion and he was the best man that he could be and still wasn't, he felt he still wasn't half the man that Mozart was talent-wise. And that really frustrated him. And you could see his struggle with his faith throughout the entire movie and just kind of his loss of sanity in the end, Mm -hmm. I thought was brilliant. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the whole concept of the movie sort of boiled down to the ideas of uh, sanity and humanity. And much like Milos Forman's other film, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, I think it boils down to who really is crazy. What what does it mean to be, you know, crazy or mad? Mm-hmm. Where does it border with passion? How does it affect different people? You know, we're we're sort of led to believe this whole movie that that Mozart is the crazy one, but you know, by the end, I think we can see that. Uh, Salieri w- drove himself to madness. Yeah. Oh, totally. You know, some people, it doesn't matter what you do, profession, you know, whether it's you're playing sports or in your workplace, this idea that someone is naturally gifted at something and they don't have to try hard at it can be absolutely infuriating to watch. 
but also at the same time, there's a beauty to it. Uh, and I think that's something that, that Salieri really struggles with. And I think that's really the core theme of the movie, where in the end, it sort of revealed that he's maybe the one that's kind of lost it more so than yeah. Mozart ever did, because Mozart lives his life you know, one moment at a time mm -hmm. and Salieri dwells on everything and overthinks it all. And, you know, that's what kills him is the idea that he can't get past yeah. the differences between them Yeah, and probably even hinders him as far as his career goes. You know, obviously we're talking about, you know, the movie portrayal of this, right. but yeah, it's absolutely great. Um, and I think there's something utterly humbling and also humiliating about this idea of Mozart being buried in a mass grave. You know, he died broke, uh, of syphilis. Um, and you know, his body is just tossed into a pit with 20 other bodies. They throw, uh, delousing on top of it and then they bury it in the rain. It's just, it's gross and it's humiliating. And I think it's sort of, serves to remind us all that at the end of the day you know we're just some flesh and bones and the soil will eat us up in the end no matter who we are yeah and it's kind of a, a sad reminder but i think it's a good sobering reminder to to think about as well yeah i think so and i think it also if you want to look at it it's the legacy you leave behind he may have been buried that way and it was humili humiliating at the end but uh, what was more humiliating, being buried with uh, a mass group of unknowns or Salieri's, you know, ultimate demise of loss of sanity. And there's a, he's talk, there's a scene where he's talking with the priest and he's talking about songs and he's mentioning some of the ones that he wrote and the priest doesn't know any of his songs, but he mentions one that was done by Mozart. He's like, oh yeah, I know that one. And it's, it's this idea that he's lived this whole life. He's had his whole life. And he's been devoted to his craft. And yet he has nothing to show for it in the end, even though he may have been the well, the, the better man in the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, this is, uh, this is going to be a first for us. Um, <laughs> I, I calculate these with a very scientific method, uh, one that I will not devolve into here, but let's just say there's lots of number crunching and beakers being boiled to figure out how these rankings work. Scientific. It's, it's very scientific. Formula. You wouldn't understand it. Um, <laughs> but for the first time ever, we have a tie for first place. So I don't know how to say what's two and what's one, so we'll just – mention one first so yeah. go ahead and introduce the next one that's so first. uh number one a <laughs> one yeah we'll go with that number one a was kramer versus kramer which came out in 1979 and was directed by robert benton uh the film won five oscars and was nominated for four others so the story revolves around a man whose wife has just left him and now he's struggling to juggle both work and his son and, and gaining a better relationship with his son and kind of coming to reality with all the stuff that he has to do. Cause he was, he was your typical like husband, dad in that time where he was very work focused and you know, the mom stays home, the mom deals with the kid. He didn't have a relationship with his boy, Billy at all. And so the film kind of shows you the progression of his relationship. And in the end, uh, Meryl Streep comes back and decides she, she does want her boy and just the struggles that, this, this man has to face with this revelation that he's come to. 
So how did you think uh, Hoffman handled that big topic? Uh, I thought it was, you know, this movie is, is, is interesting to watch. It's got, it's obviously a dramatic movie because it's about divorce, but there's also, you know, a little bit of a comedic element to it as well as, you know, we know from Hoffman with his performances and things like Tootsie and things like that. Um, I think he does a pretty masterful job showing the evolution of a character. And Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, we're supposed to believe that characters are growing and changing and he does the perfect job of actually illuminating that. Uh, you know, this movie starts out, you know, in an interesting way where Hoffman comes home from work and, you know, he's talking about the day he had and how crazy it is and everything that's going on. And, and Meryl Streep is just standing there with her luggage packed and she's waiting and waiting and waiting and Hoffman keeps talking and talking and talking and finally she has to interrupt him because he will just not shut up about his work and the moment that she says I don't love you anymore is just an absolute gut punch that both Streep and Hoffman sell so well that there's no wonder why they're considered two of the best actors not only of that generation but ever you know Streep especially with her consistent oscar nominations i think the longest she's gone is like five years without a nomination mm-hmm. it's been a couple of years now since she was last nominated so you know she's due for another one in the next year or two um it's it's stunning you know seeing the two of these two actors go against each other you know every once in a while we'll get two actors of formidable talent go head to head and the joy and pleasure the audience will get of two people with such craft go against each other. This is one of those movies where every single scene that Streep and Hoffman are in together, we are seeing two people pushing each other to be better. Yeah. And you know what we know about this movie, they really both approach that in the same way where this is about, you know, the custody of a child and, and who gets to be the the full-time parent. And I think the two of them took that as a challenge of who deserves to get the most screen time and who deserves to be the better parent by way of their acting. And I think that really is something that, that really shines through and makes this movie work so well as it does. Because on the surface, the idea of a custody battle sounds like a boring movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it works. No, I think um, I agree. The scenes where they're both in it together are are really amazing. And you almost wish that there were more of them because Meryl Streep isn't in it all that much but that's not really the point of the story it's not about their struggles it's more about his struggle with his son and his son's struggle with his this new parent figure Mm -hmm. so i mean i understand why there's not as as much as the two of them on screen together but it's just brilliant i think you know the the number one thing that you kind of learn when you're in in acting school or, or things like that is acting is doing You know, you can only have so many monologues and you get this great sequence early on right after um, Streep's Kramer leaves. And so it's just Hoffman's Kramer and their son, Billy, um, his son, Billy. And 
he's trying to get him ready for school and he's trying to make breakfast at the same time. And Billy is asking all these questions, but where's mommy? When am I going to see mommy? You're not doing this right. And he's trying to make French toast. And this is an amazing piece of acting where Hoffman is doing. We get to see him, you know, try to make French toast terribly, absolutely terribly. You know, he's whisking an egg in a mug and then trying to jam a piece of bread in into the mug mug and, you know, the frying pan is almost causes a fire and everything gets burnt and not cooked properly. And Hoffman is just absolutely exasperated hitting all of his cues of what he's supposed to be doing, where he's supposed to be. He's always, you know, facing the right direction of the camera and giving the attention that he needs to Billy for the appropriate amount of time. And that's the sort of thing where you can learn it in acting school. You can do it a hundred times, but if you don't sort of have that innate talent, you'll never be able to hit that. You know, you Mm -hmm. cast 10 other actors in that role I don't think anyone else would have been able to hit those marks that Hoffman was able to do hmm. because you actually believe everything that's going yeah, on oh, totally. and the whole time, you know, you're just ready to like pull your hair mm-hmm. and you feel for Billy. And you're like, Oh my God, the kid is screaming mm-hmm. and ready to have a fit. And Oh my God, then he's going to have an absolute meltdown and no, you're not making the French toast right. <laughs> yeah. It's angering to watch, but I think what I really appreciated, there was one part where like he gets part of the shell in the mug oh. and Billy's like, you got shell in there. And he's like, Dustin Hoffman says something along the lines of, yeah, don't you like your French toast crunchy? Like, I think it's just these, like, quips. Something that I really appreciated about the script is that, you know, that's something a dad would say. He doesn't want to admit he's wrong or doing it wrong. He's like, no, this is, don't you like it that way? Like, that's the yeah. way I like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you it's fine to laugh at that, but at the moment watching it, it's a little hard to watch. But I think maybe one of the hardest moments of the movie for me is – when Hoffman goes to his son's room uh, after he's fallen asleep and then he finds uh, hidden away in Billy's drawer is a photo of Meryl Streep because he, after Streep moved out, he packed up all the photos in the house of her. And we see him open this drawer and there's a photo of Streep and just absolutely breaks your heart realizing that, you know, this whole time we've been concerned about, you know, the Hoffman character and what he's going through because yeah. that's what the movie is focusing on, his struggles. And then all of a sudden you realize you're like, shit, there's a kid in this too. And mm-hmm. he's the one that actually has to deal with, you know, not having both parents in the picture and what, how is that going to affect his development? And all of a sudden, Every emotion you could possibly think about reverts solely to Billy. And I think they do a great job of showing that. And you've got this peaceful child sleeping and you just sort of project all these emotions that you're feeling suddenly onto the child. And that's a really great way of introduce, reintroducing, you know, the fact that it's not about the adult. It's about the kid. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really good moment. And I think that's something, you know, we often forget whenever, you know, when you're hearing about divorce or things like that or, or parents fighting, you know, we we can pay the lip service of it must be hard on the kid. But I think we we genuinely do forget what it's like for a child to go through. It doesn't matter, you know, who the parents are, whether, you know, they're rich, they're poor, or whoever it is. It's going to be hard on a kid to kind of go through this sudden change of their life uh and i think they do a really good job of showing that um i think one of the things that this movie really succeeds in is 
they're short vignettes. Everything is a scene, you know, it cuts to the middle of something that's happening. It shows you a little bit of what's going on in the lives, the day-to-day aspects of whether it's Streep or Hoffman or Billy or, uh, the neighbor that, uh, that Hoffman befriends. Um, and then it sort of just ends suddenly. And then it goes into the next scene where it sort of picks up where the action left yeah. off of wherever these people were in. So I think it, I think it does a really interesting job of actually, you know, just kind of throwing you in. You're expected to understand what's going on pretty quickly. Uh, and then getting to the part of the action. It's not about, you know, getting from point A to point B. It's just showing you what these characters are currently dealing with and what their mental state is and how they're coping with things and getting on with their life. And gradually things, of course, change, but everything is done in a very vignette way, which I think is a unique way of filming mm-hmm. this. Yeah, they show you little snapshots of of their journeys like through this divorce. And something that I really liked, we were talking about the initial breakfast scene and Hoffman trying to make this French toast and it's awful and it's horrible. Uh, and then at the end, when Meryl Streep is coming to to take Billy back, uh, they're making French toast again. And it's just a quiet moment in the kitchen and he's like doing everything right and they're just looking at each other. It's not frantic. And it's just kind of like a mirrored breakfast scene mm-hmm. showing you, you know, you saw where they came from and you're seeing where they are now and how they just work so well together and you feel so terrible that they have to be split up because they've come so far from that initial breakfast scene. It's really heart wrenching. Yeah. Yeah. You, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, they do a great job kind of bringing the quiet to the scene. You play these scenes back to back. They're so different, but in a nutshell, it's the exact same sequence of him making breakfast for his son. He knows how to do it. It's absolutely silent. There's no talking between them. He'll ask him a simple question. Do you have your things packed? That's all he needs to say. Eat your breakfast. That's all he needs to say. There's a real maturity to Hoffman's character where I think he's gotten to the point where he he knows what it means to be a father mm-hmm. and at the same time also being a real man um, that he he's really kind of grown up since the beginning of this movie. He stops being so selfish. He starts thinking about other people. He's able to think about more than one thing at once. I think they do a really good job doing that. Um, obviously this movie sort of, is mostly from the perspective of Hoffman, but I think we, we definitely would be remiss if we don't talk about Streep. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, she doesn't get a ton of screen time, but I think when she does, you know, it really is kind of a, a tour de force where she takes control of a lot of the scenes. And, and it's easy to see why, you know, she's considered the greatest actress of all time, because very quickly, you know, the power goes back to her. Mm-hmm. I think she shows a good range where at the beginning she really is this kind of lost woman behind the scenes. She can't get a word in edgewise. And that's how she leaves it. You know, she's just this this kind of woman in in the wind. And then when she reappears, you can tell that she's like mentally stronger and she she really wants she's she's made a change and she feels like she can actually be the mother that she always wanted to be, but just wasn't being because of her oppression from her marriage. And so I think it shows a good range of character and just acting in general. Like you can really tell the difference from her initial scenes to her latter scenes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, I think there's like this 
understatedness and intimacy to the courtroom scenes when we get to that in, you know, the, the second act. But, you know, I think we almost are supposed, the audience is basically the surrogate for the Billy character who is not there because there's this real awkwardness and tension that's going on, uh, where you kind of feel like you're in the middle of the two of them. And you're just like, please stop the fighting, mom and dad. I, I just want this to be over. And I think that they do a good job of kind of making the audience feel like they're the child in the relationship at that point. Yeah. And what it boils down to is they just, they both really love their son and they're both fighting to show how much they love him. And by doing that, unfortunately, it means turning on each other and just trying, which they do a good way of showing that they don't actually like, throw each other under the bus. They're trying to be civil about it. They just want to show, they just want to prove that they're doing their best. And I think there's just this one part where Meryl Streep's lawyer brings up this incident where Billy falls off a jungle gym and has to get stitches. And Hoffman told that to Streep's character at one point, just as something that he regretted and felt horrible about. And then to have that used against him, you could really tell in his face how like, wow, I can't believe you just did that. Like, that was a real concern of mine that shows that I'm a good parent and you're using it against me. Mm-hmm. And that's where he, he just kind of loses all his faith in her, I think. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of just down and out. Yeah. It's, feels like he's lost at that point. Um, and I think also during the courtroom sequence, we also get this, you know, changing of allegiances. Every time one of them sort of takes the stand, you know, you start by rooting for Hoffman, then all of a sudden you're rooting for Streep and then Hoffman. And then you kind of realize, why am I rooting for these characters? This is, you know, a child's well-being at play here. I shouldn't be rooting for someone to come out on top. What I should be rooting for is that, it will be civil and that the child's best interests will be taken into account. But, you know, it's almost played like a tennis match and you're, you're hoping for your guy to come out on top basically. (laughs) And, and I think by the end of it, you realize it when, you know, the, like you said, the, the low blow of being, bringing up this incident at the playground and you're just like, why am, why am I hoping that one of them wins custody? This isn't the point of it. The, the point of it is that Billy is going to be properly taken care of. And I think they kind of do a good job where they really get you into it. And then you kind of realize your own mistake that you shouldn't be rooting for someone to win. This isn't about winning. Yeah, I guess. I still felt angry that she won. <laughs> <laughs> I was still like, what? way (laughs) yeah i think you know it's it's interesting because you know in in divorce cases more often than not the mother almost always wins the custody battle and i think this was kind of a very pointed reason not reason um a very calculated way of presenting a movie showing uh, the father winning because especially at the time in the 70s, it was very much society believed that the idea that, you know, women were the caregivers and men were the breadwinners and you cannot reverse the roles. The man cannot be the caregiver. And so I think this was kind of kind of ch- trying to change societal expectations that men can be the caregivers and then I think, you know, because of it, you, you kind of get, you know, we can look at it now through the prism of 2017 where there, it almost seems like there, 
we're forced to believe that men are the better caregivers based on this movie when obviously that's not true. This is a single movie detailing a single case where there will be relationships that end in divorce where there's children. And sometimes the man will be the better better caregiver and sometimes women will be the better caregiver or whatever it is. And so it's kind of, you know, I, I absolutely get what you're saying where you, you believe that Dustin Hoffman's character is the right person to be taking care of him. But you know, we also see most of the story through Hoffman's eyes. So yeah. the audience naturally wants to believe. And that I he think is that's it. what it is. It's not necessarily that you think he is the better caregiver. You're just like, well, you know, she left, he worked hard and mm-hmm. he wants it now and he deserves it. And mm-hmm. that's how you feel because you've seen his side of the story. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a type of, it, the movie was made to kind of play with your emotions yeah. and play with the idea of societal expectations of, of what it means to be a good parent. And I think that, that, that movie really does succeed by, by doing that, by making you sort of question those beliefs of, of what it means to be a parent or a mother or a father or a caregiver or things like that. So I right. think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So tied for 1B, we'll yeah. call this one, <laughs> is Ordinary People, which came out in 1980. It was directed by Robert Redford. Yes, the actor Robert Redford. Uh, the film won four Oscars and was nominated for two others. You know, this came out uh, the year after Kramer versus Kramer, and we had movies back-to-back dealing with family dramas and families being broken apart and tragedies and things like that. Does this sort of prove that the best movies are ones where the stakes are more personal and we actually care about what's going on as opposed to more grandiose epics like Gandhi where it's showcasing his entire life or Terms of Endearment which didn't really resonate or things like that? That's a good question. And I think that you definitely have more of a personal investment when it's someone that you can relate to or a story you can relate to and visualize yourself in. So in this case, it's a family who's had um, a son, uh, one of two sons die in a sailing accident. And the one son blames himself, the mother blames the son, and the father's just trying to keep them all together. And I think there's there's one character for every family member that you can relate to and see yourself as being in that situation if it were to ever happen to you. And so I think that does create more of a connection to people and critics where, you know, it's more emotional. It feels more real and it creates a bigger, has more weight and heft behind it than just a story that's being told to you. Mm -hmm. I, I, I agree. I think, you know, I'll, I'll, while this couldn't be further from a superhero movie, superhero movies work best or even or even any sort of grandiose epic movie like that work best when the adversary, the antagonist has a personal relationship and the stakes are lower when it's about, you know, the entire planet or galaxy is going to be blown up by this person. It's hard to care, but when it's intimate and the stakes are more personal, it will always work better. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie works because the stakes are so personal. Like you said, the family dynamic, everyone sort of is blaming everyone. The father, while he's trying to keep the family together, also sort of blames himself for not handling things better. So everyone is assigning guilt 
to themselves and also to other people. And Mm -hmm. I think that's an absolutely fascinating dynamic. This might be probably the best film about psychiatry that I've ever seen and the idea of, of mental health. Yeah, It's done so personally and intimately. It's great. It's not... There's no big breakthrough moment where there's no eureka moment that usually happens when you've got, you know, movies either about psychiatry or mental health or, or scenes with it. And I think that's, that's really great. Um, this movie works so perfectly, mostly because of the cast. You know, Robert Redford, as a first-time director, you know, is, I think, still trying to find his voice as a director in this film. And he does some great stuff that I will talk about in a bit. But I think casting uh, Timothy Hutton as the son who lived, Mary Tyler Moore as the mother, and Donald Sutherland as the father was a real coup because they work all so well together that it's just absolutely fascinating to watch. I think, in particular, the idea of casting Mary Tyler Moore as the mother who we mostly who the audience knows from the Mary Tyler Moore show where she's this uh mother who can do no wrong she's the perfect mom everything about that mm-hmm. we we come in with this expectation of who Mary Tyler Moore is and she's this very cold calculated distant woman compared to Donald Sutherland who we mostly know as you know this very elegant not flamboyant, but very stern and serious and, and worldly man playing this, you know, almost, you know, TV dad where with more in touch with his emotions. Yeah, he's more soft and sensitive. He's soft and sensitive, but he has this real warmth to him mm-hmm. where you can, you know, I never thought I'd say, oh, I just want to go and give Don't Southern like a hug. You <laughs> yeah. know, he, he has that, that vibe about him where you just kind of want to hug him and be held by him. And he seems like he seems like he'd be the f- perfect father figure in your life. You're like, oh, man, I wish my dad was Don Sutherland. Like, I've never thought that in my life before. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a weird thing to say. Like, I don't look at Kiefer Sutherland and be like, wow, I bet he had He's a so great lucky. childhood. <laughs> So that's really interesting. And, uh, you know, for me, I think the casting just makes this movie. Uh, how about for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I agree. The juxtaposition between how we normally view Donald, Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore and then their characters in, in this film. But also, I mean, Timothy Hutton just knocks it out of the park for me in this movie. You know, as someone who is blaming himself and is suffering from depression, but doesn't want to let on that he's suffering from depression, just his mannerisms and the way he holds himself and his fidgeting and, and the way he doesn't look anyone like straight in the eye and just kind of avoids any kind of deep conversation really resonates with someone who's struggling. And you just feel for this kid. And I love the prog- progression through the film where he's reluctant to see the psychiatrist. And then, you know, he kind of continues to go reluctantly. You can see him get more comfortable as he's talking to the psychiatrist and feels that he can be more vulnerable and like it's actually helping. Because I think the first scene where he's he's meeting with the psychiatrist, he's very fidgety. He can't sit still. He doesn't want to be there. He's like straight posture, doesn't doesn't want to be there at all. But then near the end, he's talking with with the psychiatrist and he's got one leg over the arm of the chair. He's kind of lounging back and he you can sense he's more comfortable in this one room with this complete stranger, really, than he is in his own home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Timothy Hutton gives probably one of 
the all-time best performances that I've ever seen, especially for a young actor. He does such a great job of showing depression. He is a teenager that is going through depression, that is trying to hide going through depression. And so he is just acting layers upon layers and it works so well. He, you know, this is also partially, you know, the film, you know, Robert Redford choosing these things, but you have aspects of real depression being shown. You know, he has trouble sleeping. You know, he is at home lying in bed with the lights off, not doing anything. Uh, and parents come home. He quickly pretends like he's reading, that he was up because he was reading. In the morning, he doesn't want to eat breakfast, but like you, you actually believe that he's not hungry, uh, that he just genuinely is just playing it off. There's also this idea, uh, this, this aspect of, not being able to control your emotions, jumping between rage and sorrow very quickly on, you know, the, the drop of a hat where you can't really predict how he's going to feel at any given moment. And then, you know, one thing I noticed that was very subtle was people that suffer from depression usually have a hard time um, we will wear like the same outfit over and over again because they just don't want to do laundry. They just don't care. Things like that. Where I noticed he wore the same sweater for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a movie that takes place over several months. Um, and they do a really interesting job kind of showing that where you don't really pick up on that. Cause you know, sometimes he's got a, a winter coat over top or, or whatever. Um, but having him wear the same sweater day in and day out, is a very ingenious move to show that he is suffering from depression without bringing the attention to, the to it. Yeah. And I think most of the movie, they, you know, other than a few moments of, you know, him, you know, pretending to be reading a book or saying he's not hungry, do a very good job of not bringing attention to the fact that he's suffering from depression. Or unless you know the signals, which his parents don't, you yeah. wouldn't notice it. And yeah, I think that's part of it, you know. You could be going through your daily life and not, you can't pinpoint who's going through depression because it's so internalized Mm -hmm. and no one wants to show, there's a stigmatism between showing that you're depressed. There's a huge, you know, movement with mental health these days and bringing it up and that it's okay and that you can talk about it, but still nobody likes to talk about it. They feel weird about it. And so you can't say who hasn't. I think that they did that really well and show and not being like, Hey, this kid's depressed. Like mm-hmm. everyone should know he's depressed. No, he's hiding it. He doesn't want anyone to see it. He's he's not accepting it himself even. Mm-hmm. So why would everybody else around him notice it? So I think they do it quite beautifully. Mm-hmm. I think Mary Tyler Moore kind of has a bit of a thankless role in this movie, as in you really hate her. <laughs> she is very cold and distant to her own son. You can very easily see that she uh, blames him for their other son's death. Um, apparently in the book, it's much more uh, obvious that she does. She, she states it, whereas this, they don't. But I think it's still very obvious. And, you know, I, I don't use this term very lightly, but she is a bitch in this movie. And I think... It's very easy to be like, oh, I didn't like Mary Tyler Moore in this movie, but that's entirely of what the character is supposed to be. You know, we're, we're watching this basically from the perspective of the son and we see the, the coldness of her. Um, there's this real great awkward tension between mother and son, uh, early on. I know this was a scene that you highlighted to me off the air. Um, 
when they run into each other at home and they don't know what to say to each other and then she just kind of walks away. Yeah, it's really it's hard to watch because he's trying to connect with her. He's telling her about this test and how well he did on it and she keeps like, oh, okay, that's great, and then starts to walk away, and he wants to try and keep the conversation going, and then she mentions about, oh, yeah, I took that class. He's like, you did take that class? And she's like, oh, maybe I didn't, and then just, like, closes the door on him, and he's left there in the hallway alone, just kind of having to deal with the tension and the the distance between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're seeing, for sure. It, it, it really is. Uh, it was It was a performance where at the end of the movie as i i felt i didn't like her but that was really redford playing with our emotions and expectations of this where that was sort of the whole purpose of it and i think once you can kind of get over that you can see what she really brought to the film Mm -hmm. uh, as far as being so different from both hutton and sutherland uh so i think that does a, a really good job with that um I think Redford, for a first-time director, has some really interesting stuff going on. I think the the most evident of his actual direction, there's this dinner party sequence where uh, where Sutherland and Moore's character goes to uh, their guests to this Christmas party, I think, yeah. or something like that. And it has a real Robert Altman feel to it, Altman being famous for – uh, large groups of people in room and everyone's sort of talking over one another and as the camera goes through you kind of eavesdrop into conversations and they come and go and you can't really get everything and they do a good job where I think Redford is sort of mimicking that in a different way where he's doing these very short cuts where it's obviously over the course of several hours and we get dropped into a conversation and you see two people excitedly talking about something. You have no idea what it is and they're using, you know, jargon that we don't understand. Then it <laughs> cuts to something else and it's a very intimate, quiet conversation and then it cuts to something else and it's one of the characters from the first scene with someone else and it sort of reminds you like if you actually go to a party, a dinner party or a house party or whatever it is and, you know, you have all these short conversations with different people and how they're all so they can all be wildly different, even if you end up talking about, you know, similar things because you're talking about yourself mostly. And it's sort of kind of that like moment by moment you can pinpoint and be like, oh, yeah, this person I talked with that and that person I talked with this. And everyone has a different relationship and dynamic. And I think Redford does a really good job of just kind of bringing us in for a brief moment then taking us out the 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 point of that scene isn't to learn anything the point of that scene is just kind of show what these characters are like which i think is interesting and what their their life is yeah yeah um i think for me something that didn't work is the first big fight between all three family members really didn't work the dialogue wasn't that great um when you had you know more kind of say these really cliche lines and be saying to Sutherland, oh, you're choosing his side. And it was just very one dimensional and is cliche. The Christmas tree? It is. Yeah. And it just kind of feels forced and awkward. And that was one of the few moments where I don't think it works, where I think the three of them don't really work that great together in a scene, but individually one-on-one doesn't matter what the pairing is. I think it always works, but for some reason the, the, yeah, the scene of that threesome doesn't work. Yeah. One particular scene. It was the one time where they didn't feel like a family. Yeah. Like 
in the context of the movie, it didn't feel like a family. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of unnaturalness to it. Yeah. Uh, and I think another thing that didn't really work for me is the flashbacks of the boating sequences where Hutton's brother dies. Yeah, they were well, they were very contained. They were shot really close. You didn't get the vastness or the 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 extreme danger that was looming over these this like this leading to this death scene, and mm-hmm. it just kind of fizzled no like pun intended horrible pun intended there but like when he drowns and is just lost in the water it just seems very flat to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um what what else what else oh you know there were there are some moments that i do find work because when in these flashback sequences to the death you know you've got these sound effects of you know the rolling lake and the thunder and all this sort of stuff and it just seems so forced but there's moments towards the end of the movie where they start showing you know one second clips but they're silent Mm. i think that works great because that's the way memories work when we think about things we don't hear there's no sound sound in our heads we can be like oh yes i'm thinking about this conversation we had but you know it's you thinking the words you're not really seeing the people say it or hearing it it's you thinking it and i think they do a good job kind of showing that where you don't train it's a memory it is a memory there there's there's realness to it i think redford does that's another sort of deaf directing moment for him is kind of overlaying it without the sound in very short glimpses where it's very fractured which is much like how memories actually are where they're fractured moments that we remember you don't necessarily remember the whole thing Mm -hmm. details of things yeah no i agree um I'd be remiss to also not talk about Judd Hirsch, who plays uh, Hudson Psychiatrist. He does a fantastic job. A little bit on the neurotic side, but you know, the more we get to see him, I think it becomes more contained, and we understand who he is as a character, and the idea of the way psychiatry actually works, where there isn't a fix to the way he's he's going through it. You know, he's going to ask questions, and at the end of it, you know, Hudson's not going to feel any better, or, you know, he's not going to learn anything. It's just, you know, about kind of getting him to open up and yeah. access his emotions and pushing him further, and there's some great moments where he's pushing him to get angry, and he finally does, and Hudson lashes out at him and calls him a fucking asshole or throws something, and then afterwards he's like, Feels better. Feels better, doesn't it? Yeah. And he doesn't take it personally, and he isn't overacting it. And I think that does a that's a really good performance by him, where he sort of lets Hutton do what he needs to take do. It. Yeah, yeah. It's not about him at that moment. It's about him just standing there and watching Being and a supportive thinking. Role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I think Hirsch does a really good job, and you know that's not something. That we we normally think of of Judd Hirsch being this great actor, but I think this definitely is sort of a, a crowning achievement of what could have been for his career if mm-hmm. he maybe had more roles like this. Yeah, something I just want to mention about this film that I really appreciated was the ending. You know, it's not this neatly tied up, beautiful ending where everything's happy. You know, because that's not how life is, and uh, with a family struggling with such a huge event and and troubles you know the uh, more character decides to leave and you're left with uh hutton and sutherland just sitting in their backyard and they realize that you know what it's not the best situation it's still going to be hard 
but we have each other and we're going to try and make this work kind of thing. And I thought that was a really beautiful moment that it wasn't, oh, well, now we're happy. Now we can get <laughs> past this. It was, there's still more struggle to come, but we're going to do it as a family, well, mm-hmm. as a father-son at mm-hmm. that point. But yeah, so I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think, you know, to kind of add to that, that one thing that was interesting is, you know, you've got Sutherland and Hutton in the backyard and it's kind of a close-up of them, and then the camera zooms out slowly and slowly and slowly, and it becomes this long shot showing just the house, and they're very small, and then you sort of realize that the whole concept of this is it's sort of like this microcosm of what the average American life is. We don't really know exactly what everyone is going through. You know, it's kind of snowing a little bit. It's kind of like a a little self-contained snow Snow globe, globe, Um, but it's, it's very much showing this is what's going on in this house you know this movie very easily could have been about two houses Houses down down, and something else happening that we don't know about where it's you know someone's grandfather having cancer or uh someone having a student having trouble at school whatever it is it doesn't matter the point is this is what was going on in this house with this family it's very personal and intimate and so sort of an interesting way of of making the movie all about where it's kind of reinforced at the end there that final shot right yeah so those were all the movies, you know, the 10 movies from 1978 to 1987. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about. We're going to take a short break and when we come back, we're going to go to our awards. When we're talking about these movies, we will sometimes glance over maybe some of the performances, especially outside of the leads, where we don't really give enough due credit, uh, where I think here we can really shine praise on what we think was the best. Um, So we're going to start with Best Supporting Actor. Steph, if you want to name yours. Yeah, sure. So I've chosen Tom Hulse, who played Mozart in Amadeus. Um, I considered him more as of a supporting role as, uh, Salieri was kind of more of the lead character. And I think Abraham's, um, performance kind of took the lead in that film. So I, that's why I'm kind of putting him here, but I think the way he portrayed Mozart and he was this, he kind of had this, this maniacal laugh, which was hilarious and amazing because not only, did it show him as this character who was kind of wild and insane and, you know, um, young, but it was something that pinpoint pinpointed Salieri's frustration. It was something like a, an annoying tick or annoying habit that someone has that just every time they do it, it digs you a little bit deeper. So I thought it was just a great character choice. And I was reading in the trivia that when anyone would ask him to do that laugh that he said he couldn't do it without a shot of something because he just didn't know how he did it. And he was like, I, I can't do it. I just don't know how. So I thought it was really interesting that while he was acting and while he was filming, 
that just like came to him and he decided that that's how he was going to take this character. And, um, but he just couldn't do it afterwards. I thought that was kind of hilarious. Mm -hmm. Uh, did you have any runners up? Uh, for supporting, I, I, I didn't have anyone written down. No. Okay. I can think of right now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for me, you know, right before filming, I almost recording, I almost changed it. Uh, but in the end, I'm going to go with Donald Sutherland from ordinary people. Uh, I think the warmth and tenderness that he showed and the sort of grief that he was trying to convey and figuring out ways to connect with his wife. There's this great moment uh, in the movie where he comes home and he remembers that right before the funeral, he was going to put one suit on and then his wife made him change into a different suit and he just wanted to know why this suit was so important to him when in reality he didn't give a shit about what he was wearing it was the fact that he was burying his son and the insurmountable grief that he was going through who cares what tie you're wearing and there's this really great moment where he's pressing his wife to be like why, why did why can we talk about this why did why did that matter so much to you and i think that's a really great moment and this sort of this you know much like we were talking with kramer versus kramer but the role re gender role reversal i think this movie really showcases that as well mm -hmm. where we've got the father who is so kind and open compared to the mother who is much more closed off and cold um where, you know, we think back of what the stereotypical gender roles were at the time, they would definitely be flipped. And I think they do a good job really sort of showcasing um, what a father can be. And I think right. he does a really good job kind of showcasing that warmth. Mm -hmm. um, for me, my runners up would be Tom Hulse. Played Amadeus, as you talked about. Uh, Judd Hirsch was the one who I almost switched it to from Amadeus. And the last one being from, Tom... Sorry, from Ordinary, ordinary people. people. Yes, yeah. that's what I mean. Um, and the last one being Tom Berenger from Platoon. I think he did a really great job as being the antagonist to um, Charlie Sheen's character in Platoon. He yeah. does a really good job of sort of having the ferocity that's needed for that role. Yeah, actually, I actually think that would be my probably my runner-up. Uh, okay, uh, now let's move on to supporting actress. Who do you have? Okay, so I chose Mary Tyler Moore. I thought her, we've talked about it a lot already, so I won't go too in-depth. But uh, with her being so cold, I thought, you know, it was a calculated coldness. What I enjoyed about her performance while she was a quote-unquote bitch <laughs> from you yourself, um, you know, I didn't find it malicious it was her just not being able to cope with her grief and her anger and was just you know just wanted to cut it cut it off at the quick and not have to deal with anything and she just kind of lost her love for everything after that and you know i think it showed it wasn't just her being mean or hurtful it was just everyone was struggling to to cope and this was just her way of dealing with it unfortunately putting a huge wedge between her and her son and her and her husband. So I enjoyed that about her performance. Mm -hmm. Yes, she was excellent. Um, do you have anyone else you want to highlight or, or is that the, the big one for you? Um, it's kind of tough with this, the actress roles in this decade I found. So I agree. I don't have yeah. any runners up. Uh, for me, I'm going with Elizabeth Barrage from uh, Amadeus. She played uh, Costanza. Um Stanzi, as uh, she was affectionately called, you know, I think she sort of 
match the energy that Tom Hulse had, which on the surface was a very difficult ask because he did bring so much life and energy to that character. Her being able to to kind of go toe to toe with him, especially in the earlier scenes, is really great. But then she also sort of really grounds his story as well and and brings him back to reality. And I think without uh, her presence, we would sort of be lost in a bit of the the zaniness of what the movie was kind of going in certain directions. So she does a really good job sort of grounding that and kind of being the bridge between Salieri and Mozart, meeting them halfway through of what they were both bringing to the table. Yeah, I think she really balanced out... uh their two characters. Mm-hmm. Um, my runners up would be Mary Tyler Moore. You, you uh, talked about it very eloquently of what she sort of brought. Uh, and also, you know, Meryl Streep in uh, the deer hunter. I think she did an interesting job, um, you know, playing a woman who is in love with two different men and, and how that sort of affected her and, and where that re- really was going to. And, and, so she did a good job with that, but you know, I don't think we really need to spend too much time praising Meryl Streep. We all know what she's capable of. Uh, who is your best actor? Okay, so some more love for ordinary people. I went with Timothy Hutton for this one. I thought it was a very clear, obvious choice. Although there were, I do have honorable mentions for this category. Um, but I mean, what more can we say about him? I think we talked about it during our talk about ordinary people. Just his way to portray someone struggling with depression. His journey through flashbacks and through where he he comes to full circle in the end with his dad just really well done a fantastic acting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who are your uh, honorable mentions then so honorable mentions i have robert de niro for his um performance and showing up in the latter half of deer hunter (laughs) really well just the emotion he brought to his face to the character to everything that's why he's my honorable mention and f murray abraham from Mozart, or sorry, from Amadeus, I should say. Um, I loved his rest- his frustrated restraint in his character and just what he brought. You, you felt it him- yourself. You, Mozart was this crazy kind of likable guy, but you were still annoyed when Salieri was annoyed, and I think that's great acting. Awesome. Um, we're in agreement. I also think Timothy Hutton was the best actor. We, we labored very much about why he was so great. You know, all these little moments. It's breathtaking that an actor of, of his age, I don't know how old he was when he was filming, but I'm guessing, you know, probably late teens to maybe 20, 21, but playing a teenager really sort of captured the essence of the difficulties of being a teenager, you know, dealing with hormones and mixed emotions and feelings while also layering someone who is suffering through depression and not knowing how to communicate it, uh, especially to parents that, you know, he does not have the best relationship with. I think he does a really good job with that. Um, and it's just absolutely stunning. And I'm, I'm sad that his career did not take off the way it should have because based on that performance alone, he is an incredible actor. Yeah. Um, my runners up also Robert De Niro in the deer hunter. Absolutely fantastic. And Dustin Hoffman in Kramer versus Kramer. We talked a lot about what made him work for that. He does a great job, uh, doing, which is, you know, always key for an actor to have. Mm -hmm. Uh, all right. Best actress. Who you got? So this was hard for me because there weren't a lot of lead female roles. 
Um, but one that I did have the strongest connection with was probably Shirley MacLaine from Terms of Endearment. I know neither of us were too fond of that film um, and didn't find anything really redeeming about that movie. But I thought her scenes with Jack Nicholson were the best parts of that film. And I really enjoyed her kind of snooty, poised character who was also, again, struggling with trying to have a relationship with her daughter, but uphold herself to her own standards and then dealing with, you know, the grief of her daughter having cancer, just a, a range and mixture of emotions with which I thought she just brought good intentions to. Nice. Okay. Uh, for me, Meryl Streep for Kramer versus Kramer, one of her three movies of this decade, stunningly enough, um, you know, I think on the surface, the amount of screen time she gets, it could be argued whether or not she actually is a lead actress. But much like you, this decade was pretty devoid of lead female parts, unfortunately. Um, but I think with the screen time that she is given, she makes the story about her as much as Dustin True. Hoffman makes the story True. about himself. And so for that reason alone, I think she is considered a lead character that just happens to have less screen time than the other lead character. Um, everything you could say about Meryl Streep, you could say about this performance. I think if you were to try to narrow down greatest all-time street performances, this would have to be in the top three, maybe top five. Like it's so hard to, to do that because she's so great in everything she does. But this is definitely sort of a career apex where if you want to show what makes someone such a good actor, you show them scenes from this movie of, of street performance. Um, I, I agree. McLean was great in terms of endearment. Outside of that, you know, you've got Streepin out of Africa, uh, and then you're kind of left with no one else of actually being a lead female mm -hmm. performance. That, that really was it. So unfortunately enough, it was a bit devoid. Luckily, we both, I think, uh, have solid reasoning for, for picking, uh, our winners and, and it shows. Uh, and then last but not least, best picture. You differed from mine a little bit. What was your number one? Mm -hmm. So my number one was Amadeus. Just loved this film. Thought it was fun. I loved the craziness, chaoticness of it, and the, the storyline, the characters, the performances, the music, which we already talked about, which really tied into the emotions and the, the feel of this film. It was just enjoyable. I think it's the most enjoyable long movie I've ever watched. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For me, it is Ordinary People. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can't tell by now, I think, you know, you were very effusive of your praise of Kramer versus Kramer, of, of Amadeus, and my, I was very effusive of uh, Ordinary People. Um, for me, it's the performances. These these three main performances, plus the one of Judd Hirsch, so the four of them together were so great. Uh, Robert Redford, I think, while he was very clearly learning the ropes of what it means to be a director, shows some, some real creativity at times. And, and, you know, I kind of wish he directs more often. I know he does one every, you know, decade or so. Uh, but, um, he, he definitely showed some real talent and skill for what he was doing and understanding the craft. So I really appreciate 
the mistakes that he made, I think, makes this movie better. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, there's some real love and care put into this movie, and he does a great job with that. So that's for that reason, Ordinary People is my number one movie. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. You know, those are our 10 movies. I don't know when the next decade will happen. It'll probably be a little bit, especially with Oscar season coming up. That usually sort of dominates my life in this podcast. Um, the current Oscar season, not past Oscar seasons, obviously. So, you know, it'll probably be a little bit, several months. Uh, it takes a little bit of homework to do anyways. Um, all in all, did you enjoy doing this? Yeah, I think I found some some favorite films and definitely some great performances. Great. That is awesome to hear. Uh, please check out liveinlimbo.com where the show notes are going to be. We're going to list uh, all 10 movies, uh, our awards that we just gave out, everything like that. Follow me on Twitter at DGAPA and follow the show at ContraZoomPod. Let me know what you think. Do you like any of these movies? Were we wrong in picking what we thought were the best? Uh, Or you can always send me an email, dakota at liveandlimbo.com. So thank you so much for joining me, Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you, sir. Great. Oh!